You can open up to two places, Matthew chapter 2, and you can leave a finger or one of these things in there, and you can also open up to Luke chapter 2, I'm going to pray as you do that. Lord, thank you for today, for this is the day that you have made, and as a people, we rejoice and we're glad in it. We're thankful for the hope that you have given us. We're thankful that we get to look back on this story of the birth of Jesus and those that were involved in it and who you invited to be a part of it and that there's so many points in which relates to who we are as a people. You've invited us into your life, your kingdom. So may we be filled with your joy and your mercy now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week... And exactly a week ago, in about five hours, I had taken my seat at the Ryman Auditorium with my lovely wife and some friends, actually. We got to go out to Nashville to see some friends play some music. And as we were sitting in our seat, uh, getting ready for Toast and Jam, as well as Amy Grant and Vince Gill, which, by the way, Vince Gill, I didn't even know who he was. He's phenomenal. Okay? So he is absolutely amazing, hilarious. We had taken our seats in this auditorium, and it was an event that um, Churchill Mortgage put on and invited us out to come see our friends play some music. And so all these people were coming from all over the country uh, to listen and to watch. And as we sat in our seat, there was this lady in front of us who turns around and looks at Josh and myself, and she starts laughing to herself, and she says, <laughs> look at all these cowboy hats. She goes, all these guys, they watch too much Yellowstone. (laughs) Not a single one of these guys has ever even been on a horse, I guarantee it. She goes, I grew up in Nashville, I live in Nashville, and not one of these people fit the bill whatsoever. And at that point, I'm dying laughing, in which she then reveals to herself that she is a comedian. And here's a great thing about this. Josh and I, we made this comedian laugh who makes people laugh. Therefore, we've made millions of people laugh through this lady. Just think about that for a second. Thank you, Michael Scott. Now, what I want to talk about this morning is not fitting in. Anybody ever not fit in? Being an outcast, being marginalized, being looked down on. In our culture, in our society... Uh, What are things that make you not feel like you fit in? It's quiet in here. Maybe I'll I'll start the ball rolling. (laughs) Finances. I don't fit in when people have a lot or they have a little and I feel awkward in that place. Vocation. When you're hanging out with your friends that fly planes and you preach the Bible. If you know, you know. That can be awkward. Race. I feel different and not invited in or involved. Or how about this? If you're not a parent and you go and hang out with a bunch of parents, that feels weird. (laughs) And you don't have the same things to talk about. Or not being married when you're hanging out with a bunch of married people. Or language, the way you dress or knowledge, your education level, your skill level. And you can take any one of those and probably a host of other things, and in many of these social standings, at some point you can say, I have felt left out. I have felt like I don't belong. I'm not accepted. 
And some of it might be more extreme than others. I mean, you might be Dave Smith and wear a Denver Nuggets jersey to Redeemer's Church. And I will call you out (laughs) till the day I kick you out. (laughs) And you can feel a little awkward amongst all these handful of Blazer fans in here this morning. Or, Or maybe you can think back to high school and... You can look at the skaters and the jocks and then realize none of it matters because the nerds are going to be their boss anyways. <laughs> right? We can all feel like at one time or another we don't fit in and some of it is more extreme than others and we're not welcomed at the table. And here's why this matters. We all want to belong. Innate, within our design, whether you believe in a creator who made you this way or not, you want to belong. In fact, Saul Levine, a name I don't expect you to know, but he writes for Psychology Today, wrote, we humans are a social species, tribal by nature. We're given to gathering and communing in familiar groups. Hear that? We want to gather in groups that make us feel comfortable, essentially. Belonging, our capacity and need for empathy, compassion, and communication is in our DNA. Then he goes on to say the unfortunate truth. We, tribal humans, have a dark side, ironically also related to our social relationships. We are as belligerent and brutal as any other animal species. Our species, Homo sapiens, is indeed creative and loving, but it is also destructive and hostile. You don't need to look any further than what I would now call the cult classic of Mean Girls. Anybody shamefully ever seen the movie Mean Girls? Yeah, get those hands up. Lindsay Lohan, it's so sad I know this. She comes back from the village in Africa, and there's the pretty plastics over there in the high school hallways, and there's poor Lindsay on the outside just wanting to do anything she can to either fit in or get back at them. It's like my trip to Nashville and the amount of flannel I packed to go there. And I even bought some new boots, all right? We got to fit in when we're there. And this desire to belong with this, that's in with each and every single one of us leaves us asking ourselves a question that needs to be answered. If humanity is tribal by nature, we want to be around things that are familiar to us, we want to feel like we belong, is there any hope for humanity to change? If instinctively this tribal nature is within us and we want to gather based upon nationality, race, or language, economic class, or interests, and we are then constantly marginalizing other people, is there any one thing we can rally around to bring unity? The second question I would ask in this is if all humans are created in God's image, as Genesis 1 and James 5 declares, how is God going to bring us together under one rule into his kingdom? And if he can do this, who gets to be a part of it? Does it look like Genesis chapter 12 and Abraham's call and God just working through this nation? Will it just be for the elites and the religious are all welcomed. And we can't pretend here this morning like it doesn't apply to us because deep down we all have this desire to belong. 
And so what we do is one of two things in culture. Apart from God, we'll either look at a grouping of people and we'll say, I like them, I want to be like them. So I begin to dress like them, talk like them, act like them, get educated like them in order to fit into a certain grouping of people. That is one way in which we find our belonging and meaning in the world around us. The other option is to completely go the opposite direction. It's the punk rock culture, right? And I'm going to be everything against whatever they stand for in order to get my identity to feel like I belong in this world, this group of rejects and outsiders. And that's how people tend to function and operate. But I wonder, is there a third way in which we can have an individualistic identity as well as a corporate belonging? Because that's what we crave. God made us as individuals, yet he wants us to belong not only to him, but to one another. And so as we look at this this morning, I think we find a lot of hope through three themes, two main stories. The first story we're going to look at and read is the wise men, or the magi, who, who, by the way, if you have them around the nativity with baby Jesus and the shepherds, you need to move them about 150 miles away. That scene is not what that would have looked like. We're going to look at the shepherds, and then we're going to look at God's kingdom. And what we see in this passage, in these passages, is an invitation goes out to some very unlikely people, a very surprising guest list to who gets to know about this king of the Jews being born. So let's go ahead and read in, we'll start with the Matthew story, chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi, from the east. They came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. All of Jerusalem with him and assembled, all of Jerusalem with him, assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. This story gets highlighted in Matthew. And to be clear, it doesn't have any really literary connection to Luke chapter 2, except for the fact that these magi who are being welcomed into this magnificent moment of the life of Jesus is an invitation to a grouping of people who by Israel's standards would have been considered outsiders, would have been considered unclean. Let me give you just a little bit of a cultural take on what they were like. 
ancient people, especially those coming from the region in which they would have come from, they studied the stars. Why? They believed that the stars moved and it was a sign of life to the ancient minds. Stars were essentially, in their minds, shining glory of living beings. So they were representations of some sorts of deities that existed beyond what they could even comprehend. The stars inhabited the divine realm in the sense they existed off the earth, and they believed these divine beings lived far away from humans in remote places where human habitation was not possible. And the most remote places was that in the skies. So what they would do in this religion, this solar mythology, and it was common in the ancient world, carried into New Testament times, is they would study these stars, and as the stars moved, they would notice the seasons changed. A new star would come into existence, and they would think of it as a new deity being born. And so this was practiced in ancient culture. And what God does is as this new star comes into existence, these magi who are studying them, he takes their own practices, their own habits, to declare his very glory to who he actually is. Very intriguing. In addition to that, there was a famous prophecy of Balaam that said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. So the whole role and purpose of these magi, these astrologers, as they studied the skies, as they studied the stars, was to see there's something new. We need to go there. We need to see what's taking place. The gods are revealing something to us. This was a known prophecy of Balaam to both Israelites ancient Gentiles as well, Babylonians, and they see the star rise up and they follow it to see Jesus. Now, just put that over here on the shelf and turn to Luke chapter two. Luke two says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angels also said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was an angel in the multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace be amongst those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go into Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and had seen as it had been told to them. All right, so you've got the Magi. They're over here. They're pagans. They're Gentiles. They're unclean in Israelites' minds. And they get to follow this star in order to realize who the king is actually going to be. The next classing of people are shepherds. And shepherds really had a rough go. Now, not historically. 
Historically, in Israel's history, shepherds were some of their greatest heroes. For example, does anybody know a king who was a shepherd? Boom, yes. Does anybody know what Moses was doing before he was called to deliver the people of Israel? He was a shepherd. Yeah, and how about uh, our good old boy Abel? He brought a lamb as a sacrifice early on in Genesis chapter 4, shepherding in that scene. Or Abraham, he was a herdsman. Historically, shepherds have this great role, this great place in Israel. However, over time, some have argued that they began to be looked down upon and despised. For example, in the Talmud, it said they were considered unreliable and were not allowed to give testimony in the laws of court. So shepherds, you didn't trust them. You didn't take their word. You didn't believe them, all right? Also, because of the nature of their work, they were constantly unclean. And as unclean people, they would not have been allowed to participate in temple weekly worship. They were not allowed to have been going to the temple and participating in all of the festivities that would take place and the sacrifices that would happen. And so they were looked down upon as a people, disregarded, despised, even though they themselves were Israelites. And yet what we see in these two stories that in a literary way are not related, but in a way of showing outsiders and outcasts are the first to be welcomed in to the birth of King Jesus. And this morning, that ought to give you and me great hope. Why? Well, as we opened up, we all have this longing and desire to belong. We all feel as if there's just something great right out of our reach, and if we could just have it, if I could just be accepted, if I could just be redeemed, if I could just be reconciled, if I could just be made right. But who gets to do that? And religious systems of that day had all sorts of hoops that you would have to jump through, sacrifices that you would have to make, rituals and traditions that you would have to participate in. And if you couldn't do that, tough luck. But what happens here? The very ones that would have been disregarded are invited. And that is a welcoming sign for you and for me. But what are they invited into? They're invited into a kingdom. Now, two weeks ago, who was here when Jeremy taught? Yeah, that was fun, wasn't it? All right. He got up on stage. He murdered a bunch of you. It was awesome. (laughs) It was very, very memorable. There was a kingdom on the rise that Jeremy, that I'm not going to go into as much as details him, but very vividly and expressively explained to us. It was spectacular, actually. It was the Roman kingdom. It was advancing. It was filled with different people groups. It was spreading across the known world. It was inclusive in the sense that if you had a God that you worshiped, bring him on in. Your temple, bring him on in. We'll add him into the pantheon of gods that we all serve. It was great to be in the Roman Empire. In fact, at its really beginning of the height of it was the Pax Romana. You may remember this, you may not. Essentially meaning Roman peace. It was a period of relative peace and stability across the Roman Empire, which lasted 200 years. Beginning with Augustus from 27 BCE to 14 Common Era, or AD, after death. No, yeah, after death. The aim of Augustus and his successors was to guarantee law, order, and security within the empire. 
even if it meant separating it from the rest of the world and defending or even expanding its borders through military intervention and conquest. Rome was a force to be reckoned with. Rome was this mighty, great kingdom. But we all know the truth and how it came into existence. Bloodshed, fear, war, pain, suffering. That is the kingdom that is on display that Jesus is being brought into. And there was a common question amongst all of the residents. Is there a king that can unify us? Is there a king that can save us? Is there a king that can rescue us? And what the gospels do so well at is portray this King Jesus up against this Caesar Augustus or Octavian. Really intriguing. I just want to do a brief history on this just to catch you up to speed. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, was not his name. His name was Octavian. And he was the, as you may remember if you're here a few weeks back, the adoptive son of Julius Caesar. Augustus was more of this title, and it meant exalted and sacred. What do you think this guy thought of himself? He thought he was great, didn't he? Call me exalted. Call me sacred. I'm important. It carried religious significance, and he was trying to deify himself. Historian Durant, on the title Augustus, wrote this. Hitherto, love it, the word had been applied only to holy objects and places and to certain creative or augmenting divinities. Applied to Octavian, it clothed him with a halo of sanctity and the protection of religion and the gods. Right? So this guy thought a lot of himself. This is important too. And I'm going to read this straight to you from some history. An important part of his strategy involved religion. The emperor of Rome was already the most powerful man on earth, but that wasn't enough. Augustus wanted a piece of heaven too. He was determined that his people would see him as their supreme spiritual leader. Roman religion had many gods and spirits, and Augustus was to keep keen to join their number as a god himself. This was not unusual, turning political leaders into gods was an old tradition around the Mediterranean. There was also precedent in Roman history Aeneas and Romulus, who had helped found Rome, were already worshipped as gods. Now, who's heard of Halley's Comet? Okay. This plays into his story. Aside from their many gods, Romans were deeply superstitious. So when Augustus was handed a huge piece of luck, he took advantage of it. Early in the reign, Halley's Comet passed over Rome, and Augustus claimed it was the spirit of Julius Caesar entering heaven. If Caesar was God then, as his heir, Augustus was the son of God, and he made sure that everybody knew it. This is the world that Jesus is being brought into. Promoting himself as the man who would return Rome's past glory, Augustus claimed that only by restoring the traditional values that first made Rome great could he hope to make it great again. One writer commented, he renewed many traditions which were fading in our age and restored 82 temples of the gods, neglecting none that required repair at the time. As ruler of Rome, Augustus had to lead by example. He reestablished traditional social rules, religious rituals, sacrificing animals to Rome's gods. In 12 AD, he made himself Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest of Rome, and the head of the Collegium Pontificum, the highest priest in the land. You see? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Timely. You see, you see what's happening? 
This man is claiming to be God in the flesh. This man is expanding the Roman Empire. This man wants to be worshipped as deity, all the while in an unnoticed corner, in a little tiny town of Bethlehem. There is one who is born who is actually going to be king of kings, lord of lords. It's not Augustus who is savior today, but it is Jesus. It is not Augustus, but Jesus, who is the Son of God, Luke 1, 32. It is not Augustus who is high priest, but it is Jesus, Hebrews 4, 4. It is not Augustus, the turning point of the age came, but it is in Jesus who ushers in the kingdom of God. How do I know? This is really intriguing. When you look at what these magi came to do, it says they came to worship Jesus. And there's tension in this if you know the biblical narrative. When, if you study your Bible at all, in all of the Bible were people ever told to worship a man? Mm -hmm. Never. (laughs) Never. But all of a sudden is born this king, the son of God. And they come and they begin to worship him. And he accepts that worship and his followers begin to worship him and he accepts that worship and beyond that to this day, we continue to worship him. All throughout the Old Testament, we're warned not to have any idols, any graven images, any other gods. There was no representation in which we were to worship until this Jesus comes on the scene and they give their worship to him by bowing down before him, declaring in that moment that Jesus is God. And what we see in this, that the Magi get, and the shepherds as they leave and they glorify and worship God for all that they had seen, is the simple meaning of Christmas is the creator, the king of the universe, has become a human being. And listen, everything else is now secondary. Everything else is secondary. And they bow before him and they worship him. And that is what we see this morning, the meaning of Christmas. As we anticipate the second return of Jesus and look forward to that, as we look back on the first coming of Jesus, we see this welcoming in of outsiders, an invitation extended. Do you feel like you don't belong? Church, I mean this. Do you feel like you're on the outside? Do you feel like on society, there's just been this thumb of oppression pushed down on your soul? Oh, maybe you can participate in society, but you're always wondering, does anybody love me? Does anybody care? The story of Christmas is a beautiful invitation to the outsider, to the marginalized, and to the outcasts, where he's saying, come, behold, and see Jesus, and you're invited into his family. What a wonderful, beautiful truth and reminder for every single person here this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the invitation to come to behold you, Jesus, our King. It doesn't matter our background, our past, our problems, the wrong we have done, the wickedness we've been involved in. You welcomed us in that made us a part of your family. And I pray this morning that we respond to that good news and we rejoice in it. 
and we worship you because of it. For we have no other option but to bow down and declare you as Lord. So be with us as we respond now, as we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you guys would all stand with me. We're going to sing a couple of songs here this morning in just response to actually worshiping God as the Magi did. In response as the shepherds, they walk away and they glorify God. I'm going to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to the table this morning. Grab communion. I'll come back up here after the second song and we'll pray over communion and then we'll have one other song after that. There's an offering box there in the back to give to what God is doing here at this church. But I want you to know you are welcomed here into his family, into his kingdom, no matter your background, no matter your past. It's not worse, trust me. He says, come, bow down.